Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Hello and welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Max Willett. So we got another great guest on today. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that'd be great. Thanks, Max. Peter Sloan, uh, resident of Charlestown, Rhode Island, and uh, known Max since he was a uh, uh, Little League baseball star. Yep. Yep. Back in the Thunder days. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to uh, talk about what you're doing now and... Uh, Sure. Uh, one of the reasons you know, Max reached out to me is because I'm uh, the newest member of the Rhode Island uh, State Parole Board. The parole board's responsible for voting on inmates at the uh, at the state prison to see whether or not they'll be eligible for, to be, go, be released on parole, which is kind of equivalent to an early release from prison under strict supervision. Um, it's a pretty important job. I, uh you know, have to make a lot of tough decisions from what might be considered minor cases to up to murder cases. And there's uh, seven members on the board, and uh, I'm the newest one. So how how long have you been on the board now? Uh, they appointed me in October. I did a couple of trial runs, and I've now sat on uh, November, December, January. I've, I've sat through, I think, six or six or seven days of hearings and we average about 15 cases usually every time I sit. So it's you know it's pretty intensive. Yeah. So now we can sort of just uh, backtrack. And I always like to ask the question, you know, what is your life story after high school or before high school? You know, you can talk <laughs> about where you grew up and, and your life story. Sure. Well, I'm from Newport, Rhode Island, uh, from a basic kind of middle class Jewish family. Uh, my dad owned a little printing business. My mom raised me and my Two brothers on the middle son. Uh, she worked. She also worked uh, um, once we got a little bit older. And I went to school in Newport at Rogers High School. But then I graduated and went to Providence College. Uh, I graduated in high school in '73, and I got to Providence. And um, my dad went to Providence too, so of course I had to follow in his footsteps. And Providence is a great school, but unfortunately for me, I kind of became you know I was a little too much partying, not enough uh, schoolwork. Um, you know, I did okay there, but uh, you know, I probably could have done a lot better. But even starting back in high school, I had a kind of development of a substance use disorder starting back probably to when I was like fourteen or fifteen. And by the time I got to college, I, uh, you know, I was using, I was drinking a lot, doing probably a whole litany of drugs that were available back in the mid seventies. You know, I, I, mean, I did okay. I, I think I finished. I think I graduated with like a like a two six in political science and public administration. Uh, but I also got involved. You know, even at that time, in my life I was doing a lot of different stuff. I started I started with drinking and smoking weed, but then I started doing hallucinogenics and pills and cocaine. Um, so I was definitely on the party the the party track, serious party track. When I graduated, a lot of my friends are going to dental school and law school and getting their MBAs, and um, I just went back to Newport and started working in the restaurant business. And uh, 
you know, anybody that's worked in the restaurant business knows this, you know, can be a, a breeding ground for, for party animals. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of cash, a lot of late nights. And uh, so I was, uh, I was doing well in that field, but I, you know, I was doing well in the restaurant business, but I was also progressing. My substance use was progressing at the same time. Um, I did get to travel. I worked for a restaurant chain called the Chart House Restaurant. It's a really nice high-end steakhouse, and I traveled around the country a lot. I'd already traveled earlier when I was when I was in college. I took time off and traveled around to California, and I went back out there again after college with with the Chart House. Opened some new restaurants there. Um, moved down to Savannah, Georgia, for a while, and opened a new restaurant there. And I traveled for a couple of years with them. But during that time period, I, you know, I could see there was, even though I got away from Newport, I was, you know, I was still, my usage was still progressing. Wherever I went, I managed to find, you know, uh, managed to find drugs. And, of course, there's always alcohol around in that business. So uh, I ended up landed back in Newport in the, you know, in the early 80s. And um, by this time, I, I kind of narrowed my focus into alcohol and cocaine as my two main drugs. Still working in the restaurant business, um, kind of dabbling as far as uh, some illegal activities, selling some stuff, um, and I don't know. Just you know, substance use has it's like a progressive disease. It's like you start off with a little problem, then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it starts off it starts off as fun, it's big social activity, and then it becomes like. Uh, it becomes fun, but then fun with problems. And then in the end, it's really just problems. And that's kind of how my things went with me. I uh, left the restaurant business after a few more years back in Newport. I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I went to work with my dad. He had a he had a print shop called Franklin Printing. It was the oldest print shop in the country. It was an old school offset printing place and uh, pretty good size. And I was working there. I, I did pretty well there. You know, I helped expand the business. Um, we were doing well, um, uh, but the printing business was already starting to take a downward turn you know, because of modern technology and stuff. But uh, it was okay. It probably wasn't what I was cut out to do, and I wasn't really that happy. So as I was doing that, my substance use kept progressing, You know, really doing a lot of coke and drinking a lot. Um, you know, I was always kind of athletic, so I still did a lot of sports. I was playing a lot of basketball, a lot of softball, had my own teams. We traveled a lot. It was a lot of fun. Um, I got into coaching. I was coaching basketball. I coached, you know, at the local recreational level. Then I was coaching at Portsmouth High School as a freshman basketball coach. I did that for a few seasons, did well with that. So I was coaching. I was working the print shop. Um so I had some legitimate stuff serving on different boards, and then I, uh, but on the side I was doing I was doing some stuff that I shouldn't have been involved with. I was you know using a lot of drugs, and I started selling more drugs, and you know I just couldn't seem to get out of that. Uh, I couldn't get out of it. I was uh, uh, it had a grip on me. You know I enjoyed doing them, then I hated doing them. I liked it, didn't you know? Back and forth, and then. The other thing, when I was dealing, I wouldn't make a lot of money, but I'd make enough money to be to blow it on anything I wanted to. If I wanted to go on a vacation, I'd have extra money, put money into my teams, whatever it might be. Um, and I think when you're doing drugs like that, and 
you start seeing yourself as being uh, invincible. So I kind of had that feeling that nothing was going to happen to me. You know, I'd see friends of mine get arrested and, uh, you know, that's not going to happen to me. I'm fine. You know, I got this under control, you know, and, you know, I was living on the edge, uh, which was kind of like, you know, that was part of my personality, especially when I was using, you know. I mean, I do a lot of work now with people with substance use problems, and I, you know, I, I look at them and I see a lot of myself in them sometimes. I'd be like, yeah, you really, you know, it's not going to be a good ending if you don't make some changes. And, uh, you know, people used to warn me, some of my friends, you know, people would say, hey, you think maybe you're like a little, you know, you're doing too much drugs, you think you shouldn't be involved in it so much, maybe cut back on your drinking. And I'm like, that yeah, would be fine. And uh, so that was, the decade of the 80s was kind of a big, like, was kind of a big, like, uh I don't know, blackout for me. I mean, all I, you know, that whole decade I was partying, doing drugs. I still had a lot of sports stuff going on and I was working a lot, but uh, I'm always just too much. And in the end, uh, finally it was um, April 13th, Friday the 13th of uh, 1990. And uh, a guy who I was like, like a friend of mine, supposedly, who was my actually one of my suppliers, had come to my house and was bugging me and bugging me and bugging me to sell him some coke. And I'm like, dude, I just bought this from you, like, you know. And he, you know, so we're talking, and you know, he's nervous and sweaty, and I sell it to him. And as soon as he left, I knew, wait a minute, this guy's setting me up. As I and I remember seeing a van down the street from my house, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna get busted. And I start like scamping around, I'm panicky, and then next thing you know, um, uh, the cops broke in, they busted me. Uh, while they were arresting me, my girlfriend came home and uh, they arrested her too. Uh, and then um, that was the end of the party. You know, that, that was a very abrupt ending. Uh, it was all over the newspapers. You know, my parents were shocked. You know, a lot of people knew about me, but a lot of people didn't. You know, I was coaching kids. They were, you know, they were disappointed, obviously. And it certainly was the low point in my life. I remember sitting in a police station and uh, that night, not, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, my life is over. I'm, you know, I'm so screwed, you know. And, you know, well, now I know why they take your belt when you, when you go in a police station because, you know, it can be depressing, you know, and you have the suicidal thoughts. But, um, and that was the beginning of this whole new chapter in my life. So, so that was 31, almost 32 years ago. And I always see my life as kind of, you know, two major parts, you know, everything up to that point and then everything after that point. Uh, at that point, I went, I ended up going to prison. I never got out on bail. They never sent me to a rehab, anything like that. You know, it's considered like a, you know, public nuisance and they're going to lock me up and keep me in there. So I was in, you know, I'm in the prison and, um, you know, I'm going through some withdrawal symptoms and I'm feeling like crap and, you know, my, I'm all over the news and it's not good and my family's embarrassed, but they stood by me all the time. My girlfriend decided she wanted to get out of the jam, so she immediately made statements against me. So that was, you know, and then she got out of it. And, uh, you know, I was it. I ended up... Um, in the end, they sentenced me to. Uh, it was I had five tri five felonies, uh, 
like three deliveries and a conspiracy and a possession charge. And they end up giving me 18 years, of which six to serve at the ACI, the state prison, and 12 more um, probation when I got out, which is quite a bit of time for my first and first time being arrested and only time uh, so far anyway, hopefully. <clears throat> so then, um, so I end up having to do my time. So, uh, you know, um, you know, in there, I'm like trying to, you know, I'm like 34 years old. I'm not like a kid. So uh, I'm trying to get my, my act together and I'm sitting out in the yard. It's like my third week there. And, you know, I'm late, sitting, in the, sitting in the yard and it's like early May and it's like 90 degrees out and we're playing in the yard and I'm watching a basketball game. And, you know, these guys goes, hey, we need another guy to play. And they, they, they say, hey, you, coach, you know, talking to me. And I'm like, why? They go, get out here. We need a guy to play. So I stopped playing. So, you know, I had played. I never stopped playing basketball. So I went out there and I started playing. And I was kind of out of feeling a lot of shape and stuff. But uh, I started shooting, making all my shots, playing great. I played, you know, I played for a while. I played a bunch of games. And then uh, all of a sudden I start feeling dizzy because – like I'm, there's no water on the yard. I'm getting dehydrated and I'm hot and I'm like, I feel like I'm gonna pass out. And all I can think of is like, you know, coach dies in prison after three weeks, you know, playing basketball or something. And I'm thinking, this is it for me. But uh, a couple of big guys dragged me inside, threw me out of bed, gave me some water, put a fan on me, and then I survived. And I just decided to get myself in shape and just started working out, playing ball every day, working out and going through the whole thing and uh it was pretty cool you know I mean, it was like all right i survived you know and like you know because i played basketball and could do other stuff like i know you know my time could have been a lot worse but it wasn't you know it was it was tough you know i got in a big fight later on and people robbed me and uh and it was t you know i mean it's never easy but you know you know looking back on it you know i, I always tried to make the best of it I always tried to get a good job, you know, inside the prison. Worked in like a worked in the kitchen for a long time because I like to cook, so I got a good job there. And then I eventually worked in uh, the you know, the prison library, doing like handling like legal stuff for other inmates. And then my last job was at Prison Industries, which is where they do like they, you know, like they make like you know, uh, Prison Industries does like the um, license plate shop and the you know the auto body shop and the paint shop and all the different they do jobs all over and prison industries kind of like runs all that stuff so i worked in the office and uh you know i was the office guy and the, you know a couple of women there really took a liking to me and they always like were nice to me and said you know you know you'll get out of this someday you'll get back on your feet again and you know kind of kept me going and then the other thing was um i had a guy that used to visit you know i had my family visiting me you know uh, my parents, my brothers, uh, a couple of friends, but one of the kids who I coached at Portsmouth, his dad uh, used to, came to visit me. I didn't, didn't know the dad a little bit, you know, you know, pretty. But uh, he was like really helpful. Like he came in, and this guy owned like a huge business, and uh, he had like no business coming in to see me in like a dingy prison. But he used to come in like all dressed up and stuff, come running in, you know. And he talked to him about recovery, like you know. You know, do you ever think that maybe, you know, when you get out, you don't go back to drinking, like you don't go back to drugs and all that? And I'm like, you know, might be pretty helpful. So he used to help me with that and talk to me about it. And 
later on when I got out, you know, he was always there for me, him and some of his friends. And so that was good. So that's kind of the prison experience. I did two years and two months. And this is where my interest in parole started coming up. I, uh, my, I was on, uh, you know, the, you know, a lot of people get confused about parole versus probation. Parole is like when you're doing a prison sentence and they release you uh, to the community or to a program early, but you're still technically in prison. You're part of the prison system. Probation is a less restrictive uh, process. Like sometimes you move from parole into probation, or sometimes people just get arrested and just get straight probation. Like somebody might get like a, you know, a drug charge in the community and get a year probation or a assault charge, get a couple of years probation. It's less restrictive. So I started thinking about trying to get parole. You know, I had six years to serve and um, six years. And then in Rhode Island, after one third of your sentence, you get, um, you're eligible for parole. So I knew after two years that I'd go up in front of the parole board. So I had to figure out, like, I want to get out of here. I'm sick of being in prison. This sucks, you know. What do I do? So, uh, you know, I was writing to different I – need, I needed – I don't want to go back to Newport where I was from. It's too many drugs, too much – you know, there's too much damage done. I couldn't go back there. So I started looking for, you know, rehabilitation programs. And I wrote to different places. You didn't really get any help doing it. I had to do it all on my own. Anyway, one place that – the only place that really got back to me was a place called the Galilee Mission. It's in uh, Narragansett. It's uh, down on Kingstown Road. It's great. It's a halfway house. So that means you, you know, you're in there for treatment, but you're also, um, you have to go work. It's like a workhouse, so you have to go find a job. So they accepted me. Um, there was a guy from Middletown who I knew had a restaurant there. He offered me a job working in his restaurant. And, uh, you know, I went in front of the parole board, and I had stayed out of trouble for like the last year. hadn't been any fights, anything like that. And I went in front of the parole board, and uh, you know they grill you, and they ask you all these questions, and then they vote on you. And I end up, they voted uh, to uh, that I could get out when the bed was available. So a couple of months went by, and the bed was available, and I got out of prison, and I moved down to the program and started the next you know step of my life. Uh, but you know I think being incarcerated sometimes it's like you lose like a lot of your social skills like you know you're eating with plastic knives and forks and you're eating with like 30 other guys at a time and uh, you know I got out and my mom picked me up and went out to the Newport Creamery and I'm like using a knife and fork and I'm like almost knocking my teeth out with it and you know, I had like no, no social skills or anything used to you know swear every other word and uh anyway my mom picked me up in cranston and we went and i went and got my license renewed and some other stuff and we drive to the program in narragansett and we get there you know there's no cell phones there's no gps's we follow the map i get to the place get to the pla- the building i get to the building and the building's freaking empty there's nothing in the building it's like a big empty giant victorian house and I'm like, what the hell? I'm supposed to be moving in here. There's like nobody here. I'm like panicking now. And I walk through the house. Hello, hello, hello. I found these two old guys on the back porch painting. I'm like, is this the galley mission? And the guy goes, yeah, well, sort of. I'm like, kind of. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, they're here, but they're not. They've been relocated because we're from, 
Habitat for Humanity, and we're fixing the house up, so they've been gone for a while. I go, well, where are they? I'm supposed to be there. And he goes, nah, they're in Charlestown somewhere. So I'm, you know, I'm from Newport. Like, we don't, I don't know where Charlestown is. <laughs> like, I'm like, what the hell? You know, never leave a Quinnick Island if you're from Newport. So, uh, you know, the guy goes, I just go up the street and get up on the highway, and I'll bring you to Charlestown. So I get on the highway, and I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to go. There's no, again, there's no phones, nothing. So I drive to Charlestown, and I find the police station, and I uh, go to the police station, ask them, and, you know, like 10 people didn't know, but finally one person knew where it was, where they, where they were relocated at, and I finally, I called the guy, and I said, you know, where am I going? He goes, what do you mean? I go, I don't know where I'm going. He goes, you're supposed to be out here in Charlestown. I'm like, well, nobody told me. I went to the other house. You know, I don't know where I'm going, so I ended up getting there, and relocating but it was like it shows you like when you're when you've been locked up kind of how weird it can be like to like you know readjusting to society like i'm immediately nervous i'm gonna get my parole violated i'm where, where, where do i go what do i do there's no again it was before cell phones and everything and all that stuff so but i got there and i survived i made it and uh I get to the program, and then the next that night I went down to the restaurant to go to work. And uh, you know, I was going to start. And I go see the guy in the restaurant. And I thought I was going to. I've always been a cook, so I get there, and the guy goes, uh, "All right, you're going to start tomorrow morning." I'm saying, "Okay, cool." He goes, "All right, go next door. There's like a uniform and shoe place. Go over there and buy like a. You need like a uniform to wear for tomorrow." I'm like, "What kind of uniform?" He goes, "Oh, I need like a blue shirt and khaki shorts and." I'm like, for what? Aren't I working in the... Can't I just wear, like, shorts and a T-shirt? I'm working in the kitchen. He goes, you're not working in the kitchen. You're going to be a waiter. I'm like, a waiter? He goes, yeah. I go, I, I can't be a waiter. I've been locked up for, like, a couple of years. I, you know, I can't talk to people. I want to just go isolate. And he's like, I don't need any cooks. I do all the cooking. He goes, you need, I need waiters. If you don't want to do it, that's fine, but i got no other job for you. So, all right. I'll get my uniform and... You know, next morning I went out there and started waiting tables, you know. I've never really done it before. I've never done it before. But I did all right, you know. I was, you know, I can BS with the best of them. And I know food and, you know. You know, I started learning how to talk to people again without swearing. Every other word being an F word or something. So I uh, I did that, you know, and I was working and started meeting people. And then, uh, um... I didn't know what I was going to do in my life. I had no idea. Like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go back to the print shop. I can't coach. I don't want to work doing restaurants my whole life. I need to find, like, a livelihood. So I was in a, had a counselor up at the mission, and the guy goes, uh, we were talking about it, and he goes, like, well, what do you know a lot about? You know, I said, well, I know sports, but I'm not doing that. Food, that doesn't work. I go, know a lot about drugs and alcohol. He goes, I don't feel like doing that. I don't know, that doesn't work. He goes, oh, you might be able to, maybe you could be a counselor like me. Do you ever think of that? And I'm like, I don't know, not really. But he goes, well, you know, you, you're smart. You talk to people. You know a lot about it. Maybe take some classes. So, you know, I started taking some classes up at URI, the extension. They had uh, later program called the Subs. I think it was called... Uh, I feel a substance use disorder program, like a, it was like a certificate program. It was like five or six classes, and you take it, and it prepares you to become a counselor. So I started taking the classes, and uh, you know, I'd probably been a lousy student when I was younger, but I was smart. So all of a sudden, I'm getting like A's in all these classes, doing good. I like this stuff. 
So I went through all the classes, and I'm at the and I'm working at the mission. I mean, I'm I'm it's still at the mission. I'm working in the restaurant, and as I'm getting ready to leave the mission after six months, um, it was like right around Thanksgiving. Uh, I met this woman named was Linda Barry. She used to work at uh, this old program called Edge Hill in Newport, which was a big, fancy drug program. And she had taken over a, a substance use program called Ken House in Warwick. And I met her um, from another friend. And we were talking. She goes, oh, I, you know, I could really use somebody working here. I'm like, well, yeah, I've never done this before. She goes, oh, no, I want you to work the midnight shift. I go, doing what? She goes, come in at 11 o'clock at night at the, to the rehab and the guys are going to be coming into the house and you, if they want to talk to you, you just talk to them. You make sure that they don't party in the house and, and if they come in, if they're drunk or high when they come in, you got to tell them they can't come in. you got to kick them out. I'm like, all right, sounds fine. She goes, I go, how much? She goes, five bucks an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I said, all right. She goes, you can't sleep either. You, gotta, you should stay awake. You know, I don't want you sleeping on the job, even though, you know, if it's late or something, you know. So I would work in the restaurant then I would drive to the at night, like on the weekends, and I would drive there and work all night, and then uh, go home and crash, and then you know do it again. I still take my classes, and I kept going to school. And then eventually, she had me switch to the days where I became like a day counselor, and I was, you know, I just started working in the field. So it was pretty, you know, it was pretty cool. This was like now it's like 1993. I've been out of prison. You know, about a year now, and I'm working. I'm working my way in the in the field. I'm finishing up the program, and uh, I took like a certification. I had like a, I was certified recover, a certified uh, substance use counselor, and then uh, but I want to do more. And uh, you know, uh, the woman I know said maybe you should think about getting you know your uh, masters, like maybe in social work or counseling or something like that so i looked into it and i I like social work it was uh like a well-rounded field that you know it gave me a different gave me different options and um you know like what am i gonna you know what can i do um you know i could work in anything i want if i got my master's i figured or at least get a job you know so uh i applied to rhode island college school of social work their master's it's the only one in rhode island it's like the you know, only show in town. And uh, so I applied to become a part-time student, and I got uh, I got put on the wait list. You know, it was a pretty competitive school. So I met with the dean, and uh, of course I'm like, you know, how come you're not taking me in your program? You're not taking me because I'm a, I'm for, I was, I'm formally incarcerated or something. And he, I go, you don't, you know, he goes, I go, you know, have, you know, like I had the chip on my shoulder. I go, I got all A's in this other class, in my classes. He goes, you were like a two six student as an undergrad. You have like a three zero minimum. Like you know, you're lucky you got waitlisted. <laughs> you know. He goes, take a couple of non-matriculating classes and reapply. See how you do. So I did. I took them. Did well. Got A's in those. And then I got in the next year. And I so that was around 1994. So I get into the uh, MSW program. I'm already being a social worker. And uh, so I started. In the meantime, I met uh, my wife, Julie Ann. Uh, she was my wife at the time. Obviously, we started dating. And, you know, so she was pretty encouraging about stuff, which was good, you know. And uh, we were going out. And, uh, you know, she was getting, she was working in the uh, banking field and she was getting her MBA at the same time at night. So we were both kind of going, you know, getting our master's at the same time. 
And so I was getting my master's. I was working in the in the rehab, still working in the restaurant. Uh, I had another part-time job working as in another program. So I'm like, I'm working all over the place, busy all the time. Um, but, you know, grad school was a pretty interesting place. I was uh, like 37, 38 years old when I got there. And um, just one story, it was like my uh, first day of grad school. And uh, as a full-time student. And I'm like walking down the corridor at Rick in the little building there and I got my little backpack on you know trying to look like like I'm not like an old guy and uh, I'm walking down the hall and I see this guy walking towards me and I recognize him his name was uh, Rick Reamer and he was um, a professor there, Dr. Reamer but I knew him because he was on the parole board when I went in front of the parole board and I met him there and I also met him one time before that I had to give him a tour when he first got on the parole board I had to give him a tour of the prison of the medium security where I was so I met him twice, and uh, he, he, he walked down the hall, and we walked across some paths, and I, I said, how you doing? And he said, good, and he looks at me, and he gives me this funny look. I go, what's up? He goes, don't I know you from somewhere? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you do. He goes, I go, he goes, what's your name? I said, Peter Sloan. He goes, that sounds so familiar. I said, yeah, I was in front of you, in front of you with the parole board, uh, like it's been a couple of, year, couple of years ago. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you were the basketball coach. And I'm like, yeah, that was me. He goes, oh, he goes, oh, you look good. He goes, what are you doing here? I go, I'm um, going back to school. He goes, great. I love when people come out of prison and go back to school. We just don't have enough of that. He goes, what are you taking? I said, social work. He goes, oh, you trying to get like your bachelor's degree? And I'm like, no, I'm in the master's program. He goes, you are? I go, yep, and I'm going to your class right now because I had already <laughs> registered for his class. So he kind of like startled, and then uh, he goes, okay. So I went, I saw him later on that day, I go to the class. So I'm in the class, and it's a big, it was a big class for grad school. It was like 25, 30 people. It was a policy class. I'm in this class, and, the, and uh, all of a sudden, he, he, um, he, uh, like the, he goes, anybody here read the newspaper yesterday? This is when people actually read newspapers. And I'm like, like, Five people read, raised their hand. I raised my hand. He goes, anybody read an article about, there was an article in the paper about um, private prison building in this country, which is a kind of a controversial thing. You know, private prisons as a, versus public prisons. So anybody read that article? I'm like, I'm like the only one in the class. So I feel like a little bit of, so he starts talking about it, and then it gets into a dialogue between him and I, and I'm like, I'm trying to hide in the back of the class. I really don't want anybody seeing me. I'm like very shy at the time. And, uh, but ended up, you know, we ended up bonding a lot and, um, I ended up taking that class and, you know, I ended up taking them six times when I was in grad school and got A's in all of them. So we have, we had a pretty good relationship and, uh, you know, you know, Dr. Reamer and I, he was on the parole board and he stayed on the parole board for like 24 years. And over the years we've always stayed close. And when, you know, I recently got appointed, like he was one of the first ones to call me up and congratulate me and talk to me about it. So he's a great guy. We've had he's been a real mentor to me over the years and you know, started walking down that hallway in grad school. Anyway, I graduated there in ninety six. Did great, had real you know, enjoyed grad school. And uh it was working a little bit. I got married in grad school and uh I don't know, I was out for like maybe six months. I was looking I was working for a couple of agencies doing counseling work. It was good. I was making decent money. 
And I looked in the uh, one day. It was like a Sunday. And I looked in the Sunday paper. I was checking the one ads. I don't know. You know those on Max. Those are like a, yeah. it's like in the paper they have in the back. They don't yeah. really. I don't think they have them that much anymore. Well, I'll admit I've never really sat down and read a newspaper, other than like maybe like seeing the cartoons on it or something. But <laughs> I don't think we get the newspaper anymore. So no, well, it's a dying industry. The newspaper. I mean, I read it online now. I don't. I don't pick up the paper copy anymore. And I was one of the last ones to do it. Mm-hmm. But I picked it up that day, that Sunday, and I'm looking. They used to have like, you know, tons of want ads uh, as opposed to, you know, wherever, Craigslist or, you know, any of the any of the job search places. So I look and I see this job, uh, wanted clinical social worker, um, must be able to work with, you know, troubled youth, adolescents, <laughs> With legal problems uh, in a difficult environment, uh, applied to the Rhode Island Training School, uh, which is, uh, if you didn't know, it's like the, my kids refer to it as juvie. Yeah. It's a juvenile prison in Rhode Island, a juvenile detention center. And, uh, you know, uh, so I was telling Julie, I said, Jesus, this would be a great job for me. Too bad I have like five felonies and I've just got off parole. Like, like, you know, within the last year and six months ago, and I'm on probation for another 12 years, they'll never hire me. She goes, well, you're not going to know if you don't apply. She, and now, going back just a minute, the day that I finished grad school, which was uh, May May of uh, 1996, they, the journal had run a front-page article about me, like a good article, about my, my kind of like my life story at that point. A guy named Tom Mooney wrote it. He did wrote a great article, and... Uh, she goes, just take that article that, that was in the paper and st- staple it to your cover letter, see what they say. So I thought it was good because I don't want to hide anything. You know, I've always been a big person, like very upfront about what's happened with me. So I sent it in. Uh, I don't know, like a month later, I got a call. And the lady goes, you wanted, you know, you, you, inter- you, you applied for this job. You want an interview? I'm like, hell yeah. She goes, all right, be here tomorrow. I'm like, oh, thanks for the warning, you know. So I went up, I interviewed for the job, you know, and uh, I did great. It was a great interview. The people, the four people on the interview panel were all, like, kind of open-minded. They didn't hold it against me that I'd been in prison, that I had all these convictions. And Lo and behold, they hired me. They hired me to be a social, a clinical social worker at the state training school. I was going to be a state employee. I was going to become a state employee. And it wasn't without controversy. A lot of people thought it was stupid that they would hire, you know, you know, some. I think somebody referred to me as a junkie ex-con or something like that, drug dealer. Why would we hire that guy? And there's other people who want the job. Well, I don't know how many people really wanted the job. It was a, it was a crazy job. I had to work in maximum security of a juvenile prison with like murderers, rapists, and the worst behaved kids in the state. It wasn't exactly a glory job. But I took it and I did it, and uh, you know, I was in the state system and started doing good. I worked there for like after about three years. I moved to another building, and then eventually, uh, within like the first three or four years, I got promoted to what's called a unit manager. It was a good promotion. Um, worked there. Uh, I don't know. I worked there a long time. Maybe another. I don't know, 16, 17 years, and I got promoted again to, it's called deputy superintendent, and then eventually the associate director, which meant I pretty much ran the training school on a day-to-day basis. So I went from the bottom, you know, to the top. But everywhere along the line, you know, I got some great support, but there'd always be somebody that, you know, would say, like, you know, 
Yeah, why are they promoting him? You know, look at him. What did he do? You know, yeah, they never tell you to your face. They always say, like, you know, kind of say it behind your back because mm-hmm. people are never going to say anything to your face usually. But, um, you know, so I had a, I had a great career there. and But along the way, I had did it just like a ton of different things. Like I said, I got married, had my two kids, Sam and Luke. They're 23 and 20 now. So they were both born when I was there. Uh, not just my work there, but I did a lot of other stuff on the side. I became a big advocate for uh, for people who had been in prison and people on probation. And one of the things I really took a lot of pride in was around it was around two around two thousand three. I was here in Charlestown, Charahoe, and I was on this thing called the Charahoe School Building Committee. It was like how do you know you know how the schools are here? They were kind of could be dumpy and stuff, yeah. you know. And, and it was this big plan to to redo the elementary schools and middle school and high school and stuff. And it was a, it was a really big plan. It was too big, I think, at the time. And it had to be passed by all three towns here, Charlestown, Richmond, and Hopkinton. And, of course, Charlestown and Richmond would vote for it, but Hopkinton never votes for anything. So, what you know, we, it's kind of like it was a little bit of an exercise in futility. But uh, it was a good experience for me. I spent a lot of time doing it. When the time came to vote on it in 2004, I think it was, I couldn't vote. I had lost my voting rights when I got anybody who was on probation or parole loses or incarcerated loses their voting rights. Well, I always thought it was fine that people on uh, incarcerated, you know, you know, if you want to take their voting rights, that's you know, I understand that. But persons on probation, I always think like, why can't that person vote? Like, you know, they're on probation. They did, they did their time. You know, uh, like, aren't we kind of still, it's just an added punishment. I kind of used to think it was, I'm not sure why they did it. I always think it was because it was a way to keep minorities from voting because we, you know, we put so many minorities getting, you know, incarcerated and around probation. Uh, So I was talking just like this to somebody one day and bitching about it. And the guy goes, oh, you should go talk to this woman in Providence. She's uh name was Sol Rodriguez and she's like a big advocate she was running a, a like a kind of a prisoner reentry program and she wants she says sounds just like you so I called her we talked and then her and I started working on doing this project of um, giving you know people on probation and parole the right to vote back and I spent two years and I she goes you have to be the chairperson you have to be the face of this project and I'm like why I, go, I have an ugly face she goes <laughs> Because you're the one that's living it, and you're the one that doesn't have voting rights. You need to chair it. So I chaired the committee. I had all these politicians who never wanted to do a lot of work, but they had a lot of community activists who were very involved, which was good. Some of the there were some politicians who did a lot of work on it. I shouldn't say that, um, especially some of the inner city ones. And we went around, and I just tried to get people to support. You know, to support it. I would get senators and representatives and politicians and different people who I never had you know no business talking to and they would support it and it was funny I was thinking I looked at a picture the other day of myself and uh Jim Langevin who's not gonna who just decided not to run for re-election a picture of him and I in his office when he said he would support it and anyway we spent two years doing it it drove my wife crazy you know she goes I'm sick of seeing your name in the news and on the papers and stuff but it passed so in 2006, in Rhode Island, we were one of the first states to do it. We gave people on probation and parole the right to vote back. I think, you know, 
tons of states that have done it since then, but we were one of the first, and I was proud of that. That was a good thing. And uh, so I did that, and then I uh, was still working for the state, and I would always advocate for things with ex-offenders. Um, ban the box was another issue. You know how you go into like a Cumberland Farms and apply for a job? You know, give me a job application. There used to be a box. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? <clears throat> well, a lot of times, you know, people would check that off and they just throw the application in the trash. Mm-hmm. And my feeling was like, you shouldn't be allowed to ask that at the beginning. You can ask it when you go to hire somebody, but let the person at least get in the door and do the interview. Yeah. You know, and then if you do that, I mean, this person could be great, you know. So we changed that. So if you go if you, if you go to apply for a job now, it won't be on your application, but they can ask you later on about it, you know. But it was good because, you know, it gave people a chance to get in the door. Yeah. I mean, well, a felony is something from putting something in somebody's mailbox, right, mm-hmm. to to a lot of different things. So I think that I think that's could be anything. Yeah. It, it, so yeah. like why are you not going to hire somebody because they put they got caught putting something in somebody's mailbox? Oh, I know. Well, you got to fight one time like, yeah. you know, with somebody. So. Yeah, I mean that's that's a lot of great work. Um, I didn't I didn't know that about probation and parole, the voting rights, and and that's it's a very interesting topic. Um, and I think it's really good that that that's allowed now. Um, yeah. because everybody's got a different story, and everybody deserves a second chance. So no, thanks. I appreciate when you say that because yeah. mo- most people, I think mo- the majority of our society feels that way. Yeah. Um. Especially, if, you know, although, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, you know, once they, you know, you screwed up once, that's it for you. You don't get a second or third chance or anything. But those people usually don't have family members who have gotten in trouble or friends. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it, there's this song that there's a stupid, not stupid, but there's this country song that I listen to. I think it's the guy that wrote it is called Jeff. No, not Jeff. I don't remember the name of, but the song is called, you know, One Second Chance or something like that. Yeah. And I had known, I had met uh, this business owner from uh, the networking group that I'm in, and he had asked the networking group. He said, um, "I'm looking to hire somebody. I've only got one application, and this guy was, you know, an ex felon." And he had said, "Listen, I need advice on whether or not to hire him or not." And I sent him that song, the link to that song, uh-huh. and he listened to it. And guess what? He hired the he guy. He hired the guy, wow. and I guess it's going good right now. I don't know. I haven't asked him about it since, but um, I think that's a pretty good, cool example of that. Um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I'll keep the company, and you know, yeah, I'm not gonna say, you know, but, but it's still a good. Idea. It's yeah. great that somebody gave. You know, there's we used to have these lists. Um, I was doing work. I, I did. I also did this thing where I was working um, with, with URI the psychology department there in their grad for the grad school. And they would take uh, every year they'd have like four of their PhD students up at, um, up at the Wyatt detention center. It's a federal detention center in central falls. And there'd be men and women up there being detained on federal charges. And they wanted me to supervise some groups they did. And so I did that. But one thing we used to pull out was like these, they have these lists that you can find of felon friendly, employers like places that will hire people with felony convictions you know and we would provide the list to them and you know talk about that because they don't often say oh nobody's going to hire me well people will hire you. you you have to really want the job and show them that you want the job but you, you can get hired you know 
today any you know your job anywhere today it seems like the way things are going but um no there are a lot of people out there that will do you know every once in a while i walk into like you know i'll you know uh there's some places i'll walk into and i'll see people a lot of times that have been that have been in prison that i see that they hire so it's a good thing yeah um so it says uh here on your resume uh rhode island school department of children youth youth and families Mm -hmm. Uh, if you want to talk about that a little bit so so in rhode island department of children youth and families dcyf which you know most people hate <laughs> uh they the training school falls under the dcyf so because it's youth you know it's you know kids uh, a lot of people think it should be under the department of corrections but it is where it is um around uh i think 2018 i was getting burnt out working there um you know i was getting calls around the clock and i wasn't happy i was thinking about just retiring at the time I was in my you know early 60s and then um i had a chance to go down to uh D- so dcyf headquarters and i ended up taking this job there as the substance use disorder liaison basically it's a kind of a long version of somebody in charge of all the drug issues at dcyf and the person when i got hired the woman goes oh Oh, you'll love this job. I go, why? She goes, oh, you just go to meetings. You go to a bunch of meetings, and that's all you got to do and talk to some programs. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to, like, be involved and stuff, right? Yeah. Well, um, anyway, one day I was uh, – um, what happened was I was uh, – I got somebody – I had a new supervisor, and she was like – she agreed with me. Um, uh, her name was Stephanie Terry, and she said um, – Maybe we can get maybe you can get involved maybe on more individual basis. So it, there was a case that had come across her desk. She was in charge of. Um, she had a big job there anyway. What this uh, job came across her desk and was about a a mother who was on. Um, it was a, a pregnant mother who had uh, tested positive for using opiates and um, during a pregnancy. So. She goes, just call her up and see if she wants some help. She goes, she doesn't have to work with us because she doesn't have any her kids on DCYF custody yet, but see what she, you can do. So so I call her up. She said, tell her you at DCYF, but tell her don't, don't hang up and, and convince her to, to work with you. So I did. And um, and I, I started working with what's called a recovery coach. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's called a certified peer recovery specialist. It's, it's called a recovery coach. It's a person who's in recovery from drugs and alcohol, um, they're not like a counselor, they're just like a peer support. And uh, I knew about this program, so I recommended to this mom that she work with our one with this recovery coach. Little did I know that that would be the first of like hundreds and hundreds of cases that I would refer to, to recovery coaches, and hundreds and hundreds of cases that I would talk to parents individually, just from that one started with that one mother. And uh, pretty soon I started working with. Any parent that had a substance use problem that needed help, the workers would call me up. I would call the parent, talk the parent into getting some help, and then we started, you know, doing better work, reunifying, more, you know, keeping families together. You know, if the parent didn't want to get help, then they would probably lose their children or their, you know, but most of them were willing to try to get help. So over the next three years, um, I built up the Recovery Coach program. Um, and got a lot of parents into different treatment, worked with a lot of treatment providers, and it was anything but going to a lot of meetings. I can't, I never wanted to go to meetings. And 
the last year and a half, I was doing everything from my house because of COVID. And I like that because I would sit in my little room and talk to parent after parent after parent. And uh, when I was at DCYF headquarters, you know, you're like in a cubicle and people are coming by. You got to go to meetings, get this bothering you, distractions. I got ADHD. I get distracted in two seconds. But I would just like focus on, and I would talk to like, you know, 15, you know, families a day sometimes, you know. And just this amazing amount of people I would talk to. And uh, it was a great job. So I did it for, I did it for about three years. But in, um, um, about about a year ago, uh, Governor Raimondo had come out with this um, voluntary retirement program for state employees who had been there like over like I forgot he had to be there like twenty something years and he had to be over age of sixty something. So I don't know. I was sixty five at the time. And I had like twenty four, twenty five years in. So I, uh, you know, I filled out the form online. I sent it in to see if I was eligible and. Um, came back said you're eligible you know we'll give you this amount of money to retire early so i said fine so uh i chose like may 15th as my retirement date and uh my wife was a little skeptical that i was going to be retiring but i assured her that would be okay and uh so then i left in may and uh i really felt like i looked back at my career and i'm like wow i I started as like a nobody social worker and ended up as the associate director of the training school and you know, I started this other substance use disorder liaison as a you know, job where you're just going to go to meetings and train into this big program that we helped all these parents. And uh, none of it, especially the second part, I never do anything by myself. It was just kind of like, you know, I always figured that if you found other people at work that were like really good people and you worked hard, things work out good. I was at the training school. I worked with some of the best people at the training school. Some of the other, the, the, like they don't call them guards, they call them juvenile program workers, social workers, teachers, managers, cooks, you know, uh, shift coordinators, all these different people. I would work with some of the best people, you know, and it's kind of a thankless job working the training school. Like nobody cares about that. It's like, it was like, they'd stick like the slugs down there sometimes, but I liked it and I liked the people I worked, most of the people I worked with. Then when I get to DCYF headquarters, it was the same thing. You know, I had you know I worked for a really good boss, and I had all the workers sending me cases, and I had people around me who were great. I mean, really, you know, so that part I enjoyed. I enjoyed helping people. I felt, you know, I don't know how many people. I know I made over four hundred referrals just for recovery coaches alone. You know, in a couple of years, you know, and uh, just proud of what I did. And you know, but it was time to go. I was sixty-five. I'm like, I need to go in another chapter in my life. So I left and, you know, I stay in touch with, especially the recovery coaches, I stay in touch with them a lot. Um, This woman, her name's Katie Gonzalez, she was the first recovery coach I dealt with. I gave her hundreds of cases over the years to work with. And, uh, you know, now she's still like one of my closest friends. I just talk on the way out here today, she just called me. She's a person who's in long-term recovery and had some criminal justice stuff and, um, She's getting, you know, it's like a lot of times when people are in, um, like my record, you know, you have your, your record. You must hear about that, Max. It's like somebody says, oh, I got a criminal record. Like, I'm like screwed. Well, I got mine expunged after 28 years. It took me to get mine expunged. And 
she's working on hers now. Hers is minor compared to mine, but it's still, it, they hold it over her head, and she's just getting hers cleared now. She's going to get it cleared up in like two weeks, and I'm like, I can't wait because I'm proud of her. She's done a lot of good work. So. Yeah, well, amazing and very inspiring story. And yeah. and um, I'm I'm very happy that you came and talked about this because... Yeah. I mean, I sit here and I talk to a lot of different people and a lot of them have their own businesses. They come from different backgrounds and I've never really talked to somebody extensively with this sort of background and you've really educated me and and opened my mind to a different uh, avenue of life and I really appreciate you talking about it. I couldn't imagine how hard it is, you know, to talk about, Um, but... uh, yeah, I really, I just wanted to say that is I really appreciate you coming on and no, talking about it. Well, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you have me on. You know, it's a strong, you know, it, it, you know, there's a lot of people out there in the community who people don't know who have substance abuse issues or have criminal justice issues and like they just live in the everyday life and you might not know it. You know, I was, I was some guy the other day and he, and I made some comment and, uh, you know, about, I don't know, probation or parole or something. And he started talking to me, and, and then, you know, he started telling me about how he was on, had been on probation and this and that. The guy looked like the most normal guy in the world. He'd been working some job for like 15, 20 years. had no mm-hmm. issues at all. But, you know, pe- and people would never know that, you know. But, you know. Everybody deserves a second chance. Yeah, unless they've, you know, murdered somebody or something like that. Yeah, that well was. Uh, <laughs> that's well, where I draw the line. <laughs> there are different cases. Yeah. There's different types yeah. of things, too. You know, that's like on the parole board. We get all different. You know, I've been on the, like I said, I've been, I've probably heard like, I don't know, whatever, 75, 100 cases so far. And they range from everything from, you know, it could be like a DWI, mm-hmm. you know, with inju- serious injury to, to murder. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the murderer shows more remorse and is working a lot harder than the DWI person. So, yeah. I think as a person who's been locked up and who's got substance use issues over the years, I think I can, I, I got a pretty good judgment on, I think, who's going to maybe be okay and who's not going to be okay if we let them out. Yeah. So so it's definitely helped being on the parole board and, you know, with that sort of experience. I think so. Yeah. But, I, you know, the board is well-rounded. It's not, you know, like, like we have, like, you know, um, May, Os- May Oscar Perez, he's a major in the Providence Police Department. We've got a couple of attorneys. We've got a psychiatrist. We've got a woman who is a, a big housing advocate. Uh, we've got a community member. Uh, I think that's it. There's seven of us, but it's a pretty well-rounded board. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like, you know, I like the idea of, you know, everybody's got their own little expertise. But I definitely know, I probably know more about substance use than all of them, most of them. And uh, my every, most of them, they all know about criminal justice in prison, but I'm the only one that's ever been there. You know, I'm, yeah. I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I'm the first person in the history of the state to be on, who has been in front of the parole board and then served on the parole board. Wow. So I think I think it's insane that <laughs> that hasn't happened like in the state before, where somebody has has built the way up like that. Um, I think. If there is an option to have somebody like you mm-hmm. on a pro board in any state, they need to take it because there's no other. I mean, there's the experience isn't 
get any better than that you know yeah. like being able to use that experience that you've gained over the years and, and using that to help people you know yeah. if they need it i i agree um and there's other people in Rhode Island would be great at it. I just give him a shout out. This one of my uh, one guy I worked with this guy James Montero. He's uh, he did a lot of prison time, a lot more than me, and he's probably a little smarter than me too. I think sometimes, but he runs a thing called the Reentry Campus Program, and it provides uh, secondary uh, post secondary education, you know, college classes to men and women in prison, and when they get out, it's a huge program. I mean. He's done a phenomenal job with it. And, like, you'll see, like, sometimes people come from the parole board and they go, yeah, I'm doing the reentry campus program. Then you see people who go out and they still do it. And it's getting he's getting these people, like, college credits, college degrees. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, a lot of times, you know, people don't even know about it. And I'm like, I see what he does. It's, like, amazing work. Like, you know, he's committed. And there's other people who are committed to doing stuff, you know, to, you know, there's a, there's a thing called the formerly incarcerated union. Um, I got some friends that help run that, and they they advocate for for rights for people who have gotten out of prison. It's really important because who else is going to fight for you? I mean, like you know, I mean, especially people are trying to do well. Mm -hmm. So it's good that we have you know you know people in the state, you know, who are out there every day doing that doing that you know. And like you said, a lot of people people deserve a second chance. Uh, you know, sometimes they deserve, sometimes they need like a, sometimes they need a third chance. Actually, you know, yeah, it depends where they're at. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah, so I ask, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people their opinion on college, and I'd really be interested to get your opinion <laughs> because obviously it helps you. Yeah. So, do you think that for in modern society that it's necessary to get a college degree to be successful? Mm. I don't think so. I mean, I think it depends who you are, where you are, and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Like, you could be like an entrepreneur and you don't need a college degree. You could be working, you know, depending on what you want to do. Like, if you want to, you know, if you're, you know, if, you, if you're in a, a trade or a skill, you know, you need to be educated in that skill going to be like an HVAC person you need to go to HVAC school you mm -hmm. didn't necessarily go to college for it I mean you go to New England Tech and pay like a million dollars but you can just <laughs> yeah. you could just become an apprentice and do it too yeah so why but you know so why bother so I don't think so but for me I need it because I needed um those letters MSW uh, I'm what's called a licensed clinical social worker too those letters behind my name mean a lot I, I have a private counseling practice it's pretty small I have like maybe 10 clients right now. I don't try to do more than that. I focus on substance use, mental health, and anger management. But when I write a letter and I put MSW, LCSW, whatever letters, you know, uh, you know, means a lot to the to the judge or to the court. But for you know, you know, for like a lot of people come out of prison, college is a great option that really would help them. Other ones need trades, you know. So everybody's different, you know. So to say that everybody should needs a college degree, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's good to get one, but I mean, look at all the successful people in the world that don't have college degrees yeah. or master's degrees. Yeah. You know, I just figure like, for me, it, it, it works for me, you know. Like these recovery coaches I was telling you about earlier, most of them just have high school degrees. But they go back and they take the training to become a recovery coach. It's like, it's 50 hours of it, of classroom stuff and then 
400 hours of field work and then they take a test and they become a certified recovery coach. Yeah. They don't have to go to college for that, but they need to, they need to get education, training. Just like if you're going to become a plumber or an electrician or anybody like that, you need to get training. Um, I mean, you just don't wake up one day. Uh, you know, even if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to know not enough about the, the work you're going to do to yeah. get to do well at it. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, nobody's asked me what I thought. But <laughs> well, I'm a therapist, I'm still, so I ask a lot of questions. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still learning. I'm still, I think, gathering an opinion on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm in school. I'm at. I'm all online right now. Um, as much as I think it's convenient, at the same time, I, I don't like it because. As you said, you you gained a relationship with a professor and it helped you out, mm. and uh, it's something that. Sorry, my computer just went on sleep. It's something that um, helped you, and I was at URI um, for two semesters. Yeah. Um, the first semester was completely normal, 2019 before COVID, and I really really enjoyed it. I was making friends. Oh yeah. I'm not a party guy, but you know, people that I would never met otherwise if I didn't go to college. I was learning. I really enjoyed URI. Then this second semester started off normal and then COVID hit. Boom. And we were online um which is probably the downfall that hit, you know, and my college career sort of took a major sideswipe because for me at that time when I was at URI college and working you know I had 3D printers or whatever I said I had a business and I didn't really do anything with it you know and when COVID hit I actually started making masks for people and I started seeing a little bit of money coming in and I'm like if I just dedicated a little bit more of my time like maybe I could start getting some going here yeah you know I had a website I, you know, was running out of my parents' basement and, uh, what's that? <laughs> Mask. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the, if you look right there, so basically when I printed them, they're, they're, they were printed flat on the, if anybody knows how 3D printing works, they were printed flat on the build plate. And then I would use a soldering iron and I'd melt the plastic together so that it would sort of conform to your face when you oh, used it. Shoot. And, uh, yeah, I sold, I sold a bunch of them. I mean, a bunch of them for me, I sold like 40 of them, but you know, I started making them and then the supply chain caught up with masking and yeah. nobody wants to buy it, you know, 35, $40 mask. Cause that's how much I was charging for them. Probably um, cool at the time though. Oh, it was awesome. I actually, um, made some custom ones for somebody, uh, Kurt Harrington, who was on the podcast, something fishy. And I put their logo on the, on like the nose part. And, uh, yeah, nice. and I made, I made everybody sign something saying that if you get COVID, it's not my fault. I never claimed to be a healthcare person. I never claimed to be a certified manufacturer. If you buy them for me, it's not my fault. <laughs> you get COVID or die. <laughs> um, oh, God. so, but, uh, yeah. And, and that was like, yeah, that was, oh my God, almost two years ago now. Um, it's yeah. been that long, huh? Yeah. Well, that oh, was 2020. God. You know, the beginning of 2020 in like yep. March. And um, yeah, and, and then that semester went by. I think I passed all my classes. And then 
the That's summer rolled around and I'm like, all right, looks like we're going to be online for a while. I'm not going to pay $15,000 a year for online school when I could go to CCRI for like 2,500 bucks a semester. So I, I took a summer class there online, see what it was like. I was like, there's no difference. And, um, then that fall, I think I only signed up for like three classes. I don't really remember why, but I did. I signed up for like three classes and, uh, I had actually really started pushing my business. I joined a networking group. I, I started doing marketing. I started running Google ads. And that December, I did enough money where I felt like, all right, I want to make this into something. I'm going to have to take some of my own money. I'd save the money from working, put it into the business, and start something here. So I was like, I did like 2500 bucks that December in sales. And I'm like... I am rolling like I got money and I, that's not a lot of money at all. But I said, I'm going to look for an office. And I was looking, I was looking, everybody, you know, wants lease agreements and long term and money up yeah. front oh, and yeah. everything like that. And I know Joe Scott, who was on the podcast, oh, he owns yeah. this building. Oh, all right. And uh, he got me into the spot for a very... Uh, cost efficient price and I was like when can I move in that was January 15th of last year and um, I went up 125% in sales over you know from 2020 to 2021 and I'm on track to hopefully do that again this year oh that'd be cool if I do 125% increase in sales again then I'll be doing pretty good for myself and uh yeah, and as a business was growing, I sort of lost my interest in college. Um, so I'm still gaining that sort of opinion on what well, I think I about think that, college. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing that kind of goes along with what you're saying is sometimes I think that, like, why are we sending 17, 18-year-olds to college sometimes? Like, you know, it's kind of the belief, like, you know, take a year off and, like, travel around or maybe take you know something like you know i wasn't ready for college i was 17 i think when i went to college and you know i wasn't ready for it it was kind of a i did all right i had a great time met a lot of great people had some great classes but overall if i had waited a year or two probably would have been better um you know same my kids too my you know my you know my my oldest son graduated during the pandemic and luke my uncle once started during the pandemic mm -hmm. so Really wasn't fair to those kids. Um, when I went to grad school, I was started. I think I was forty-one when I graduated, so I had a lot of life experience. As I told you, I had a lot of life experience. So I'm glad I did it, but it was certainly, uh, you know, certainly it was certainly a challenge for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it. I think, like you said, it, it depends on who the person is and what they need. And I think, I think for some people, it's absolutely necessary to to help mature them as a person and, and see what they want to do. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a touchy subject, I think, because it's still a discussion for me. Yeah. And, uh, I think right now my plan is just to stay in and I haven't got my associate's degree yet. Um, so I think that's the first step is going to be getting my associate's degree and I'm, I'm trying to get my real estate license as well. 
So that'll sort of be, you know, if I can pass that. That test is harder than people think it is. There's no easy test out there, is No. Well, I mean, I thought, I don't know what I thought. I thought it was going to be like a driver's test. You know, you, you, you can just wing it. You know, (laughs) (laughs) and this exam, I'll tell you what, it's a two part exam. It's like over a hundred questions. I think I took it once already and I failed it Um, because I didn't study. I thought I was just gonna be like, oh, this will be easy. And I failed it miserably. Um, So if you're going to get real estate license, pass it the first time, (laughs) you know, study for it, because now I'm sort of in a predicament here where I'm taking a test prep class and now I'm going to have probably wait another eight weeks to take the exam and it's 70 bucks every time you take the exam and it was already 230 bucks to take the class uh, and then yeah. you'll, so, pa- you'll be fine you'll pass yeah, it i i hope but. so because i've i've never really liked tests it's i it's and when i was in high school it always seemed like no matter how long i studied for i would always get a 75 or whatever uh. and uh i mean i was able to get a's and b's you know in the occasional c but I just was, I'm, I was always nervous about taking tests and uh, I don't I've know. seen more and more the trend towards not as many exams. Uh, when I was in grad school, I basically didn't have, I think I had like one exam. I just, everything was papers yeah. and research projects and, you know, things like that. Experience. Yeah. 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 So I, I, that's why I did fine. College, I sucked. It was just like, I couldn't get out of my own way a lot of times and stuff, you know, and especially if you had a lousy professor. Then you really could. Then you didn't learn anything. If you had a good professor who really captivated you, yeah. then you'd be right in there. But. Well, I did. I actually was at a couple of in-person classes last semester yeah. at CCRI, um, and I had this one class that I ended up dropping out of because the class was. So we were in a classroom not much bigger than this room that we're sitting in right now, and uh, the professor was Greek. Couldn't understand a word he was saying. He had a mask on, so that made it even worse. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, screw this. I'm not great at what this class is about, anyways. I'm going to fail it unless I get a better professor. <laughs> so and you dropped the class. I dropped the yeah. class. I'm no, like, yeah, it's yeah. not worth me trying to do this the whole semester and failing it and then having to take it again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then I had I took calculus professor was great you know very straightforward class like you see a lot of professors and teachers trying to make like a fancy learning environment and changing things up and his class was very traditional he had homework he had quizzes he had exams i didn't do great on them but i ended up passing the class so that's go. what i'm happy yeah. about <laughs> well i tell you this i'm glad i don't have to go back to school anymore i'm you know i'm 66 i don't i don't you know i don't think there's much left to have to do to take any more exams because I think, frankly, at this point, my mind's starting to shut down on some of the stuff. So I'm glad I did it when I was younger. And yeah, you know. but you'll be you'll make the right decision, I'm sure. I hope so. Yeah. But so I don't. So something else that I had mentioned before we started yeah. is you know talking about the criminal justice system yeah. in Rhode Island, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on are there things that you think that we can still improve on or things that you like sure. and want to talk about? Um, well, the you know, my main one of my big pet peeves is uh, you know Rhode Island. I don't know what the stat is now, but we were always in the top two or three states for the longest probation periods. We stick people on probation like forever, mm-hmm. like you know, like you could jaywalk and get ten years probation. You know, it's, you wow. Know, I mean, but not. I mean, not just exaggerating a little yeah. bit. But the, our probation sentences, you know, you think like I guess mine. I mean, just my case alone, it was eighteen years. So I sold. 
drugs, you know, on three occasions, and I've never been in trouble before, and I got 18 years, you know, my whole, you know, you get six years in prison plus 18, 12 more years of probation. You know, seems like a awful long time. And then in Rhode Island, to get your record expunged from a felony, you can only get it expunged if you've only been arrested once. So I was arrested once. And um, I had to wait 10 years, so it was 28 years from the time of my arrest. You know, I worked my whole career at the state. Like I'd already done, I was ready to retire, and I got ex- I got my record expunged in like I think 2019, 2018, 2019. After all those years, I was ready to retire. I'd worked my whole career with the state. You know, you think about that, and I still had the criminal record. Yeah, you know, and I have you know friends who, you know, they've changed some of the laws, and I t- I think our attorney general now is very progressive on some of the stuff. The other thing that I really get, you know, upset about is um, charges of drug possession. Like, you know, if you get caught with possession of like a certain drug, like heroin, cocaine, it's a felony charge. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, I mean, a felony for possessing a drug that maybe you're addicted to. If you're not selling it and you're just possessing it. I don't even know why why it should be that serious of a charge. Like, shouldn't we just be trying to get like people help, like getting them into treatment and stuff, and mm-hmm. instead of like, you know, um, treating it as some you know major you know legal issue. The other thing is, um, uh, you know, back in like uh, when cocaine, uh, when crack cocaine uh, and cocaine was becoming more and more prevalent, you know, our prison population was going through the roof. Um, You know, Rhode Island had over 3,000 people here. I don't know what we had nationally. Like a million people were locked up. And most, a lot of them were on drug stuff. So it was, so the cocaine, uh, the cocaine crack, like um, uh, insurgents was, was treated like a criminal, like a criminal matter, like a public criminal matter. Now, now the last 10, whatever, 15 years, once we started the opioid, you know, epidemic, mm. um, comes around, you know, big pharma starts pushing like Oxycontin into the, into our system. And, you know, you know, we're getting, you know, drug companies are, are selling, you know, stuff like crazy. And all of a sudden, and then when they run out of the prescriptions, people are switching to heroin. Now heroin, you can't find everything's fentanyl. Well, anyway, if you think about that, now it's not, now it's a oh, suddenly it's a public health matter, you know. It's a matter of it's a matter of public safety. It's like, you know, let's help these people, you know, and let's not, you know. Well, that's great, and I agree with that. But what happened when it was cocaine? Why weren't we doing that when when the cocaine epidemic was going mm-hmm. on? You know what? Maybe it was because I don't know. Uh, a lot of the people who were selling it were from the inner city, were minorities, maybe. You know, when the you know. Drugs and alcohol—they don't—they don't care who they impact. They don't care if you're male, female, white, black, Hispanic, old, young, gay, straight. They don't care. Mm-hmm. It's gonna—you know—you put something in your body. It doesn't care what, what your body is. It's—it's it's gonna impact you or not impact you. You, know, you hear a lot of people go like, "Yeah, I tried coke like one time. That sucked. I'm not trying that." Or you know, drinking. Yeah, <laughs> I have two beers on the weekend. That's it for me. And other people, you know, but. Um, other people, as soon as they put something in their body, they become addicted. But, you know, to me, you know, I always think like we should be treating substance use like it's a, like it's a like it's a public health concern, not like it's a criminal matter. 
drug drug dealing that's different you know mm-hmm. that's breaking laws that's like you know putting poison into the streets of the city i was guilty of it and people are still guilty of it you know even though it might be to like in my case in many cases it's to support the habit that you have but it doesn't matter um but for simple possession charges max i think like why are we char- why are we making this a felony why are we even making a misdemeanor mm. you know pot's not a misdemeanor you know pot you know possession of weed is not it's nothing anymore it's like a traffic ticket it's going to be yeah. legal by the next two years, like in Mass. Yeah, it's it's almost like, is it a coincidence that the same time that there's been a war on drugs since Ronald Reagan was around, <laughs> that the same time that's happened, everything's gone up, Us, you know, usages have gone up and things like that. Is that a coincidence mm-hmm. or, I don't know. It's it's it, I've never really thought about it, but I know, you know, that that was a big thing that Ronald Reagan was pushing. Yeah, oh yeah, him and his wife were. Yeah, they were big. Yeah. In the meantime, he was. They, you know, meantime they were doing stuff with, uh, you know, in, in Nicaragua and stuff like that, and, and other drugs coming into this country. But my thought is that, you know, I, I also think we overprescribe medications. Mm, some I think we've kind of got a better grasp on that, but you know, I. I see, like, uh, there's a lot of changes that are going on in the substance abuse field that I think are better. Like, for example, um, you know, for, in treating opioid addictions, we, we used to not want to give uh, methadone or any type of um, alternative. Uh, you know, we use Suboxone and other substances to help people with addictions, which, you know, I was never for that. But over the years, because I've seen how certain places would, like, like would like saturate the person with methadone so they can never get off but now and more more nowadays i think you know it saves lives especially when we start using things like uh suboxone and uh subutex and some of the other substances that are out there to some of the medication assisted treatment programs that are out there um i think it's good i think we're um, helping people, we're helping people with addictions. We're helping like mothers. I was dealing with pregnant moms with addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a great. That's a that's a big thing that I feel passionate. I'm passionate about. But I, the idea that we keep charging felonies for some of the stuff, and I know that our, you know, I, I think the attorney general now, Peter Narone, is extremely progressive on on stuff. You know, I I watch some of the bills that that they submit, and I think it's I think they're definitely moving in the right direction, which I like. Um, not to try to say I'm like soft on, on type of any type of crime, but I mean, if you're committing a crime, let's go after that. But if you have a, an addiction problem or a substance problem, let's treat the addiction. Yeah. You know, you can't get into a program around, by the way, there's never enough beds in this state for the amount of people who want to get into pro- treatment. You know, if you had a drug pro- problem right now to try to get into a program like today or in the near future, it's like impossible. It's almost like you can't talk about trying to reduce the number of people in the prison systems and not talk about reducing um, charges and, and drug possessions and, and things like that, right? It's, you get that a lot. You hear that from a lot of different people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, like I said again, like I'll say this again, is I've never really said, you know, sat and thought about a lot of this because it's never really directly affected my life, to be quite yeah, honest with you. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, but uh, uh, great. Do you have anything else you'd want to talk about, or um, no? You know, I, I think we touched a lot on the parole. You know, the, my okay. role on the parole board. Um, you know, and, uh, 
you know, the, what I bring to the board. Um, I think my views on substance use in the community, legal stuff, you know, what we think we need to change. You know, I, as far, you know, um, I take every case on the pro, but I take case by case. I don't like broad brush. Oh, we should let drug dealers out, murderers out, this one. Out. Every case that comes in front of me, I read up on it. Like I'm going like Monday, I have 15 cases Monday, so I'll start tomorrow. I'll spend a couple hours tomorrow reading the cases. I'll read a couple hours Sunday, reading the cases, taking notes, looking at each case individually, seeing, you know, you know, how I feel. Like they give us a laptop with everybody's history in it there. Their past criminal history, their family, you know, family stuff, institutional record, uh, what they've done good in the prison, what they've done not so good in the prison, where they're gonna go, everything. And then so when on Monday when we come to meet you know, I'll be prepared for all the cases. And I won't make up my mind because I want to hear what the person has to say, the man or woman. I want to hear what they say. I want to hear what their attitude is. You know, do they present well? Do they do they seem like they're passionate about wanting to get out of prison or do they just not care and just go through the motions? So that, you know, I touched on that, which I appreciate. I like the education thing. Um, you know, when I look at people when they get out, I, you know, I look at, I look at, um, you know, I look at their criminal record. I look at their what's what's their job possibilities, their employment status, their educational status, their housing status, things like that. So those are all big areas. Mental health, another thing that you know we could talk all day about. You know, so many people in the prison. They used to say ninety percent of the people in prison have some type of substance use disorder, but I don't know. I'm not sure if that's high, low, or right. But I also know that there's a huge amount that have mental health disorders, mm -hmm. anxiety, depression, trauma, PTSD, ADHD. It could be anything, you know. Uh, so, I mean, another thing. And, uh, you know, I guess you can probably tell I could go on all day about different topics that yeah. I'm passionate about. But, no, that's uh, no, I just appreciate the chance to tell you know to you know to talk about this stuff, tell a little bit about my story. Yeah, good to see you again. Now, yeah. you're, all, now you're all grown up. It's stuff. been a long time. I, I mean, I don't remember the last time I I had seen you. I must have caught you in high school a little bit when you were yeah. playing. Maybe you know my son gave up. Luke gave up baseball, but I know you were still playing. Yeah, and I you know I do see your dad once in a while. He's a great guy. You yeah, know? you know. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I have great parents. I have a great family. Yep. Your so. mom. We used to go on those trips to you know like New York and different places, and that was great. And yeah. I I I it's funny. I was talking about this actually with my coach from this Rhode Island Baseball yeah. Institute. And, I, and I've never really thanked this man for really jump-starting my baseball career, but Scott Gamlin, I'll tell you <laughs> what, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I would have never pursued baseball if it weren't for the chance that he gave me on, uh, on that AAU team, the Tritown yeah. Thunder. Oh, and yeah. him and, oh, my gosh, what was that? Ross? Coach, was it? Oh, from Ru Westerly? Yeah, yeah Aaron's yeah. dad. Yeah. Uh, that was a a great summer because it was only like one summer I was on that team, right? Or one year. I can't I remember. I know we yeah. played. Yeah. I can't really remember. I know Luke jumped around to a couple of different yeah. teams, but, but yeah, I mean, we're going back. We're, you yeah. know, not everybody knows it's kind of out of context here, but you know, I played baseball with, 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 uh, Peter's son, Luke, um, when we were what, 12? Started when, probably younger than that because you're on the same oh. little league team. So probably. Yeah. 10. Well, that's right. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember, I, I remember I hit that walk off bunt it was and they made a error to first base and i made and i walk off bunt i remember it was like the eighth uh, inning were you there yeah you remember i still have the baseball 
Uh, I have it. Yeah. I have that baseball, and I, I wrote on it, walk off bunt uh, in the bottom of the eighth inning. I can't believe I still have that baseball. Well, I still. Luke's got baseballs, his first home run, and yeah. this one. And uh, he, would, he would write against who the pitcher was that he hit it off. Yeah. So just, uh, you know. I, oh man, yeah, I have but, my first because my first home run ball was at was um during AAU. It was right. up in Massachusetts. I think I still have that baseball. My mom made everybody sign it, which I mean I didn't really like, but <laughs> 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 because they're well, in, we, we, as parents, we're proud of our kids' yeah. achievements. You know, I'm real yeah. proud. Of both my, both my boys have done well. I'm sure your parents are proud of you and, and your sister and what you're doing. Um, yeah. This is and this is a great opportunity too. I like the setup in here. It's nice. Yeah, well, it, you know, I'll, you Move know, on. I haven't really officially announced it, but I'm expanding. I'm going to have a whole podcast studio now. Yeah. You know, at the end of the month, so um, it's going to have all that the the foam padding on the walls, and it's going to look official. So, because right now it's like I have in the same room. It's my 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 office. You know, like my computer conference table which is what the mics yep. are attached to and then i got my 3d printers so i can't have like my 3d printers running while i record a podcast because they're no. too loud so now i'll have different rooms and yeah. more opportunities to record more podcasts so um yeah so i really really like i said earlier appreciate you coming yeah, on thanks again for having me appreciate it yeah not a problem so uh guys make sure to follow knowledge is power on instagram and uh, make sure to email knowledgeispowerri at gmail.com if you're interested in coming on the podcast or maybe have some, some suggestions on who I should have on the podcast, uh, let me know. And guys, thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll catch you in the next one.